Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We've got an action-packed show for you today, folks. There's been plenty of big news regarding the future of England men's and women's cricket. There's been a riveting test match in India, a T20i series in Pakistan, some county news and more. Later in the show, we'll be hearing from Essex's Jamie Porter. But to start off, you'll have to do with myself, Yaz Rana, Wisdom's Ben Garner and the editor-in-chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine, Phil Walker. Thanks for joining me both. Phil, what's your moment of the week? Uh, it has to be Silverwood. It was a surprise up to a point. Uh, that was my moment of the week as well. So, All right, well, you. do you, do you want to go first? No. Well, keep going, keep going. We'll, we can both have the same moment of the week. Yeah, so it has to be Silverwood, yes. Uh, it, unquestionably, it was a surprise uh, up to a point. Um, Gary Kirsten appeared to be a shoe-in. Apparently, he didn't interview very well. Not that he's really there to impress the ECB's uh, suits with a PowerPoint presentation, but to actually coach a successful Test match side. Uh, which he has done, of course, very successfully uh, with two high-profile teams in the past. I think there may have been issues around uh, commitment and lifestyle with Kirsten. Um, and I think the uh, the popularity of Silverwood and the um, absolute commitment that he would be able to give to the job across both formats, or indeed all three formats, uh, probably clinched it for him. Um, within the England dressing room, it would be a hugely popular appointment and I imagine amongst the rank and file in county cricket too. You hope that Gary Curtin's PowerPoint skills weren't the reason why he didn't get the job but it sounds like he had different expectations for how much work he'd have to do compared to what the ECB expected from a head coach. Yeah I guess so but I I am surprised was that I kind of I wonder how much the fact just that as well as Chris Silverwood knowing county cricket in a way the fact that he is English as well I mean Ashley Giles has talked about that ideally the head coach would be English because it shouldn't matter it shouldn't matter but yeah because the English system is producing the right coaches you're right it shouldn't matter but I wonder if that came into it at all um probably did Giles has said it Giles has been quite clear about that that in an ideal world it would be an English coach England's two best coaches of the modern era are both Zimbabwean yeah um I don't think it matters at at all not a jot personally but Chris Silverwood his, his rise has obviously been quick but I also think that it's in a way, he's kind of checked off every box as, as he's going up. As, like Essex were phenomenal under him, and I know they've carried that on this year. But he did he did a, a, an excellent job there. He's done a really good job with England's bowl. There's been a few real success stories there. Um, so, I, and I think that the fact that everyone likes him, it's it's. I don't think it's he's been promoted above his station, even though it's come quickly. I think if you're comparing CVs, Gary Kirsten's is. Is, is so much better. Sure. Uh, he's, he's led two teams to the number one ranking in test matches in the world. He's won a World Cup with India. Chris Elwood has only spent two years of his entire coaching career as a head coach. He spent the other eight as a bowling coach. He's, he's, he's 44. He's still quite young. Uh, I'm not saying he's going to do badly. And I, I also think that whether or not the English players like him and want him to be coached, that's irrelevant as well. What's that got to do with it? It, it, it should be irrelevant, but I'm not sure if it is irrelevant. Um, Joe Root, 
is well known to be a fan. He's a fellow Yorkshireman. Uh, and the fact that he is already acquainted with the inner sanctum of the England side uh, will count in his favour. Whether it should count in his favour is another question. Now, arguably, in a middling test match team, uh, with mediocre results over the last two or three years and a couple of really big players underperforming, uh, there would have been a case to consciously look outside of the inner mm. sanctum. There would have been an argument for that. It's sure. not really a statement. However, however the, the big players in all international teams, not just England, have an enormous amount of power and influence. You see it with India. You see it with England as well. Um, and Bayliss intuitively, I think, understood that the coach's role is almost to be an anti-coach now, to, to subsume your personality to the team itself. And I think Silverwood will be appointed in a similar kind of guise. I'm not saying it's a right or wrong appointment, but I can understand how... They've come about this decision. I can also understand why people will feel somewhat underwhelmed by it. Um, but his reputation within the game, and it's not sexy, you know, he's, a, he's an Englishman. We, we have this kind of com- compulsion to look overseas across all sporting uh, coaching roles in England. They seem more exotic, more powerful, more potent and all of that. But Silva's reputation within the game, within the county game, with people that he's worked with, is very, very strong. Don't, don't get no mistake. England senior players would have been consulted in this. Um, Stuart Broad would have been would have been asked about his opinion. Um, Silva, if you're talking about Silva's sort of CV within the England side, you know, seeing Broad have you know have Warner on toast all summer. Silverwood would have would have assisted with that, you know. He would have worked with Archer, he would have worked with with Mark Wood, and it's only small little tinkerings, but all of that would have counted in his favour, I think. Mm. A lot of England bowlers have developed under Chris Silverwood. Um, uh, it's interesting what you're saying. Sorry. What? Well, I, I just think what you're saying about the role of the modern coach is very interesting because obviously there are there Thanks, are ben. different ways to do it, but I kind of think that these things should work in cycles almost, and that any one coach, if they have their style it's very hard for that to be successful over a long period of time because each has their positive and negative aspects and over a long period of time, those negative aspects come up a bit further. So if you look further afield than cricket, if you look at football, say you have Mourinho can come into a team, can bring in discipline for two years and at first that really works well with the team and then it's just it's just too much. And, and in a way, that was the same with Flower. He, well, Flower's he drove the them and then he drove them too that. hard. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And the Flower example, I think, has changed the... Uh, the requirements of of the England coach, because what you saw with Flower, as you rightly say, was um, an incredibly powerful and strong personality who eventually, arguably, became um, counterproductive within that dressing room. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, you've seen some malleable characters, and you've seen some uh, um, withdrawn or detached kind of characters. Undemonstrative is probably a better way of describing them. Uh, and that has seemed to work better in the unique psychological environment of, of a cricket team, of an international cricket team. Um, Silverwood, I think, fits into that mould quite consistently. And was it Flower straight into Moores? Am I right in thinking that? Because Moores is more similar to Flower, at least at that stage in that respect, and being more of a, a hands-on kind of like, yeah, having his finger in all the pies of the areas yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Where So I, I almost think that now you're going to... You, you, if Chris Silverwood is more hands-off, as people seem to be saying that could again, this is when you'd want a more hands-on coach to kind of, you've got the kind of the attitude and you'll like each other and that kind of thing and the environment's good. Yeah. Now we get really, really good at test cricket. Essentially. Yeah, I mean, well, the England football team, 
they kind of go from one extreme to another every time they appoint a head coach. Mm-hmm. It went from Sven, the the calm overseas coach, to Stephen Claren, the passionate English, went to Capello, who went again, you go into high profile overseas. So I think it, there's almost a strength in actually England sticking to their guns here. They think this type of coach works. I, um, I, I hope that Graham Thorpe is given more responsibility with this side. It, it, it's a slight irony, I suppose, that we have a fast bowling coach um, now elevated into a, a test match setup at least mm. where the batsmen are, are struggling rather than the bowlers mm. um we we need some a bit of tough love i think with some of some of our our test match mm. batsmen and um maybe silverwood can deliver it or maybe he needs a strong technician alongside him to work closely with root with Bearstow and so on mm. silverwood needs to be tough with root they need to nail down the the three or four situation once and for all um and Root's, Root's kind of identity for his Test match team has maybe been a little bit confused or a little bit wishy-washy here and there. I think they need to sit down, I'm sure they will, sit down and really mark how they want this mm. Test team to end up over the next two years. Well, I spoke to Jamie Porter, somebody who knows Chris Silverwood better than most people earlier in the week, and this is what he said about Chris Silverwood and what he's like as a coach in the dressing room. So thanks for talking to us. I just wanted to get an idea of what Chris Silverwood is like as a coach. He was your bowling coach when you broke into the Essex first team and then your head coach when you won your first county championship. How much did he help you with your bowling in particular when you first broke into the team? Do you know what? What he did for me is not only did he help me understand kind of the game and understand bowling, he helped me understand my style of bowling you know he never ever tried to teach me how to bowl like anyone else he just tried to make me the best at my skill set which you know I think personally I think was the best thing he ever could have done for me what did he tell you to do what kind of things did he tell you to work on so for me it was a big thing about becoming you know enhancing my skills which you know my biggest asset is with the new ball I can hit the seam and seen it both ways so we worked a lot on on okay how can we make the ball talk from the best areas so we did a lot of drills around pitching the ball in line with off stump and then you know being able to beat both sides of the bat um, so that was something that you know really took my game to the next level because then all of a sudden i had these skills and I had the control to to really make them work so you wouldn't say that he has a, a distinct coaching philosophy when it comes to pace bowling? He He's quite good at working with different types of bowlers? Yeah, he's, he's very versatile. I mean, he's, he's not a one-size-fits-all man. He's, his biggest skill, in my eyes, is that he keeps it simple and he'll get the most out of the person he's working with. Um, and then when he was head coach, what was his style there? Was he quite hands-off or did he still get involved helping the techniques of individual players? Yeah, very hands-on. You know, like he was still working very closely with the bowlers, and, and he, you know, he he's a worker. You know, he he's very he likes to be busy. He likes to be, you know, he doesn't he doesn't just delegate and let people do do all the dog work. He, he gets stuck in and throws himself about, and um, and you know, he, he's so good, like so calm, relaxed, and he's just got a great aura about him. And then what's he what's he like with batsmen? Because obviously he's a former England bowler himself. He has an excellent record developing bowlers. But England's problem in recent years has been predominantly its batting. What was he like with the batsman? What was his approach with them when he was head coach? Did he encourage a particular type of approach as a team? Not really, no. He, um, again, 
he's so good at getting the best out of people. So if you had someone in our side like a you know like a Tendo or Foz at the time who can be very um, you know who, who are quite aggressive players, he'd never encourage them to play any other way. You know his his philosophy was find a way to get it done. And if that's you want to go out there and throw a few counter punches, throw a few counter punches, or if you're you know a Nick Brown or you know Tom Wesley who traditionally face a few more balls. Okay, go and grind us out, grind out a hundred. You know, it was just trying to get the best out of every individual. You mentioned that he had um, an aura about him. Is he is he one for big speeches? Does he give the players the hairdryer treatment when things go badly, or is he quite relaxed as a as a coach in the dressing room? Very relaxed. You know, the, the thing. I mean, the reason I, I use the word aura is because for such a nice guy, like probably one of the nicest blokes you'll ever meet, he has your respect instantly. I mean, he very rarely had to let people, you know, he very rarely had to give the hair dryer treatment because guys would never push the line with him. How, how do you think he won that respect? I, I, I don't think there's a, really a massive secret to him. He's just such a good guy. And, you know, we all know that he, he's just like, if you do push the line with him, you know, it takes a lot to upset him, but you wouldn't want to do it. it it's really hard to explain because... On a personal note, I've respected the in terms of he's done a lot for me in my career. I thought as a coach, he got the most out of me. For for me at the time, I, you know, I was still early in my career, and I've got you know I'm being handed the new ball and being told to lead the attack, and I'm being given the confidence just to go and do it how I want to do it with no fear of failure. And you know, for someone to turn around and say that to you early in your career, it does make you really respect them. He definitely does sound like somebody who gets the best out of players. Um, and then on a personal note, it must be great having someone you know so well as the England head coach. Going back a couple of weeks, you were arguably pretty unlucky not to make the plane for the New Zealand tour, given your rec- record over the last few years. Did the selectors get in contact with you about why you didn't make the trip? No, I literally haven't heard from the selectors once. Um, so, is there a frustration there that you've not played a test yet, despite all those wickets, the, all those lines call ups, and you've you know your your full test call ups as well? Yeah, I mean, because this season I think I was quite at my best, so that was more of a self frustration because you know if I had been at my best, maybe I would have had a chance, but. Um, you know, of course, I want to play for England and I want to get get out there and, you know, I want to play as soon as I can and play as many tests as I can. But mm. at the moment, I suppose it's more motivation than frustration. You know, I know what, what I need to do to to get hopefully get myself in and, and that's all I'm going to be working towards. Cool. Thanks a lot for your time, Jamie. Enjoy your winter. Yeah, will do. Good Cheers. Bye. Take it easy. Cheers, bye. He sounds quite similar to Trevor Bayliss, as we've kind of already discussed. But he's got a really tough job on his plate. Um, ben, you wrote something for Wisdom.com about the challenge he faces to reinvigorate the test team that's actually had probably a more mediocre record than we even perhaps realise over the last few years. And there's a 2020 World Cup that's just over a year away as well to prepare for. Two very different things that are both very important. Yeah, it's interesting England's test record. I think people think of them as most teams are as being kind of dominant at home and not very good away. But I actually think it's it's a little less clear than that. Like I think they, although they don't really lose test series at home, they do lose quite a lot of tests at home. 
And not many other teams do that. Exactly, yeah. Whereas England have had, they have had a few notable victories away from home in the past. Like going back quite a long time, but still that's how rare away Test Series wins are. But yeah, as Phil says, the the, the batting is, is the main thing and, and the identity. It's definitely, it's definitely been wishy-washy. I mean, mm. there's it's changed almost from Test to Test at times. Remember after the West Indies Series, they said, or Trevor Bailey said, our strength is our numbers four to seven, the sort of route. Best Oak Butler Stokes engine room, and that was bad news for Ben Folks. And then after the Ireland test, when Roots promotion number three, the message was when you spread our experience across the batting lines, which is two completely contradictory things to be saying. And they they they, they do there's a there's merit to all the things they're trying. There's merit to going with lots of all rounders, players who you know can win you games. There's that shouldn't be discounted as a way forward, but they need to just choose a method and stick to it, or at least if they are going to change it, justify why what they've said before was the right thing to think at that time as well. Mm-hmm. It is a great job to take on, isn't it? What a great time to, to have it. Mm-hmm. it. Possibly he's... It's not that he's fortunate to have the job, but he's been in the right place at the right time, I think. Um, and as you say, you know, he's very new to this whole game. You know, Three and a half years ago, he wasn't a, a coach or even an assistant coach. Well, in fact, in fact he was a bowling coach at Essex. Uh, but it has it's happened very quickly for him, but that needn't be a, a problem necessarily. Um, you know, there's something to be said for for blooding a, a young, enthusiastic coach, and so on and so on. But in terms of being in the right place at the right time, this is absolutely perfect for him because you have a, an ODI side that runs itself uh, and is already awash with success, and you have a Test match side with its tantalising populist selection for New Zealand, which. Is only really going to go one way. This this Test match side is not going to get worse. I don't think. I don't think they're going to lose more games at home than they have done in the last two years. I think it's going to go in a positive direction. It might take time. There's going to be ups and downs, but I think the the talent pool of that that Test match side uh, is a mouth watering one for a new coach to work with. Uh, I really really hope it works out for him. Um, as you know, you know, I'm a, I've got a soft spot for Essex, and I, I I went down there two years ago when he was still in charge and. And spoke to Irani and I spoke to the chief exec there as well as a couple of the players who echoed everything that Porter said. He never loses his call. He's clear-minded, hard-working, dedicated. Um, all of the cliches of a modern coach, really. Um, so, yeah, I think we should get behind it. It would be great if it could work. Yeah. It really I think, sorry, I, I think there's virtue too in it being his first gig as well as it being a bit of a punt in that he's going to leave everything out there in a way, you know. Uh, like Gary, Gary Kirsten, his, his name is kind of always in the hat for these gigs and he doesn't seem to get them. And you wonder if that's almost what counts against him. He'd kind of quite like to get back into international cricket that keeps going forward. But it's like there's no one team or job he's passionate about. And you kind of think that when the interviewers are actually, this guy's not going to be the guy to like fully get to grips with all yep. the sort of the intricacies of this role and to then take it forward. Whereas Silverwood understands it and also is he's going to want to get this right and is going to do everything in his power to do he, it. He needs, he needs to bring that technician through. I've, I've, risk of banging the same drum. It's absolutely critical. If you think again back to Flower uh, and Fletcher, they were both brilliant batting technicians. Mm-hmm. Fletcher is acknowledged as the best of them all. Um, Silverwood will have a grasp of it, of course, but he's not faced new balls in international cricket. He's bowled a few, but he's not faced them. Kirsten would have fulfilled that role. He needs to find the right person alongside him. Hopefully it would be Thorpe, who is being, is being carried on, isn't he, uh, in the setup, mm. uh, And bring Thorpe right alongside him, shoulder to shoulder, and get him working really, yeah. really closely with these batsmen. I, I think I, I mentioned it before in the podcast. I think England actually were, towards the end of the Ashes, finding a formula that worked. They did actually face bat whole day, 
every time they batted after they were bowled out for 67. One more thing on Silverwood. I think I said earlier he's only had two years as a head coach in his whole career. But those two years were were so good. Extraordinary. He, he, he took over Essex as a temporary coach when they were fifth in Division 2 got them up to third that season. Next season, they're promoted. And next season, they won the county championship, Division 1, with double the number of wins than anyone else in the division. That is quite extraordinary. And they've basically carried on ever since. Yeah, indeed. Uh, He said to Irani that winter, after they'd been promoted, he said, don't tell anyone, but we're going to win the league this year. And they did. And they did it comfortably. No one in England would have even put... 5p on Essex to have won that league and they did it at a cancer and Silverwood believed before a ball had been bowled that they were going to do that well that was Monday then on Tuesday there was big <laughs> news announced about the structure of women's cricket in this country so from next season there will be an additional 40 full-time professional cricketers in the women's game Phil you were at the announcement it's yep. good news isn't it it's hard to find any negative news within it I think I think you've already outlined essentially the the top end um, headlines from it. 40 new professional contracts on top of uh, the existing central contracts that already are are taken up. Which uh, I think is 21 players. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so so 60 60 and a bit uh, professional players from the start of next year um, earning a living wage um, at the very least. Uh, Okay, there are questions regarding the next batch of players. Now... um, Claire Connor was very clear to say that this is just the starting point and this is just the first two years uh, and the the intention will be to get up to three figures as soon as possible. And if then when they do get up to three figures, 100 plus professional players to begin to equate alongside Australia's 120 professional players, then you can start to fill these eight regional representative teams with a fully integrated professional squad that's the that's got to be the end game for them at the moment and this is this is economic reality and we I think we have to appreciate that uh, it's still only a few years still only five minutes really since since girls were were having to pay their own way buy their own kit right so this is I mean they still do it county cricket they yeah, they still yeah. do for sure and and this is this is a conscious attempt to try and redress some of this imbalance. So, so a few questions. So where are the 40 players coming from? And are, are those eight regions, they're crucially not the 800 teams. Yeah. It's so quite confusing, isn't it? Because you've got, it, it, you've got it, 800 teams at the centre of yeah, so, professional so, women's so cricket it, next it, year. Exactly. But you have eight regions that are, that are the players, the 40 players are being picked off five from each region that are different to those 800 regions. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, that that that's exactly right as as I understand it. I mean I think it also the contracts as well are they're separate to the money they stand to gain from the hundred. So yeah, a lot of these mm. so five per whatever the regions turn out to be, they're going to be getting a living wage for, uh, or yeah, so a decent amount of money for this full time professional thing. But they also can get another like few grand on top of that. So it ends up becoming a not wholly unattractive prospect just almost from a career point of view, especially if you're building up to playing for England at some point and getting the that comes with that so I think that's the thing is that it, it, it not only makes it attractive but it just makes it workable yeah sure yeah it makes it a, a reality now for, for for more more talented young female cricketers as we know and they they were very open about this yesterday uh, the the jump between the top end players and the county system is vast uh and if we think that in the male version um top top tier County cricketers are not necessarily uh, ready-made test cricketers when they get picked for England. Well, you can multiply that by a few when it comes to the women's game, and they're very open about that. Um, 
So this is a clear attempt to try and uh, bridge that gap and raise the standard. But we, we want to focus naturally enough on the professional game um, and the top end elite element of women's cricket. But uh, this, is, this is very much an integrated uh, whole pathway right from, from, from the bottom. And, the, and one of the most interesting talkers yesterday that probably wouldn't have been, been, been in the press very much was the, uh, the regional manager for Devon Cricket who discovered or helped bring through rather Heather Knight, who was the sole lone young female player in a, in a boys-only team. And he said she was the best player, best player in our team comfortably. Uh, and and he was explaining just this sort of the, the practical challenges of of working in in these in these little regions, these silos, if you like, and bringing through young cricketers uh, who are suddenly turned onto the game in, in in numbers that we haven't really seen before. And so this is twenty million investment. It's not going into people's pockets at the top, although some of it will. It's going into the bottom. It's going on to that, those bottom rungs to try and make the system a little bit more integrated. And just to reiterate, these eight regions, they're clusters of counties because at the moment the, the standard is spread far too thinly across the country. So if you can cluster a handful of counties together, then the cream of talent from those, that cluster then moves to the top to a representative team. The problem was it's the, a good idea. The, the previous county structure had 35 count, exactly. counties and you had players exactly. at, at different, top players at different just levels. An, just another number, sorry. Um, Rob Andrew as well, chief exec at Sussex was there. He said, um, the, 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 in effect, the applicants to go into their academy programme, there were 80 uh, girls being assessed last year or maybe two years ago. I think it was last year though. This time round, it was 230 something. Um, Le- legitimate talents who who can make a claim to get onto that academy program uh, he said Andrew said who has girls who played cricket himself he said this is the biggest problem that the game faces managing this kind of passion mm. these numbers and harnessing these numbers this is a lot of where this money is going to well yeah. I was going to say that Early in the year, Mark Robinson spoke about how one of the biggest challenges from his point of view in terms of giving out contracts was they had to be that to keep in mind that if you don't get a professional contract, a central contract before this year, before this announcement, that was it. There was no professional cricket. So players like Tash Farron, so somebody who had a contract for a while, then wasn't giving one. That's, they are then in incredibly tough positions because they can't really financially stay in the game. And this means that players who maybe haven't made it at 21, 22, as ridiculous as that seems, can actually forge a, a, a decent professional career. Yeah, definitely. Because that, that, while the step up between domestic cricket and international cricket is too big at the moment, we're also seeing there are these talented players underneath. We've seen them come through the Kia Super League, mm. the likes of... Emma Lamb and, and some of them have made the step up like Lindsay Smith has, has managed to do it but it's, it's going to be those players that there's like like you can almost count them at the moment but there are enough of them to definitely justify this I also think that this decision I mean it should get these to be a lot of goodwill I think it's it's not before time because I remember talking when the 100 was first announced as the sort of replacement for the Kia Super League and there was understandably a lot of confusion among people who sort of uh, like care about the women's game and I was talking to someone at the ECB about it, he was saying, like, you've kind of just got to have a bit of faith. Like, you've seen what the ECB has done for women's cricket in the past few years. You've got to just have faith that we do have a plan, even if we can't say what it is yet. And so, to begin with, I think people were happy enough to do that. And then, as more and more details about the 100 started coming out, with that feeling more tacked onto the men's than its own thing that had been 
properly thought through with some of the venues and then with the announcement of how much they were going to get paid and it was sort of paid in comparison and crucially not enough to live full-time professionally on which is what they promised when that was announced people thought that that was what was replacing the full-time professional thing whereas this now should really Mm. boost that back up and i think now you can kind of if there are a few things like details that we're not sure of because all the details in this this is reasonably fleshed out but it's i mean we don't know where these regions are going to be we don't know what the new one day into 20 competitions are going to look like and these are reasonable questions to ask but i think now that this has come out we can kind of reasonably expect that these be is at least going to give us the answers at some point 20 million in two years 50 million all being well over five Mm -hmm. these are unheard of sums for women's cricket Mm -hmm. in england um and whisper it it's been inspired and uh really only implemented on the back of the TV deal, the broadcast deal of two years ago, uh, that was predicated on um, a new tournament being created. Mm. Now, we can argue again over 100 versus 2020, sure, of course. Let's do that again. Uh, But the the cold, hard reality of it is that that 1.1 billion deal for five years, which kicks in from next year, uh, has opened up these opportunities for women's cricket. Absolutely. Well, so yesterday they also ECB also announced that they won't be announcing a head coach till January 2020. Indeed, yeah. Mark Robinson resigned seven weeks ago, and there's a T20 World Cup in February. Why the delay? If that was the men's team, I think people would be up in arms about that. Yeah, they would be. Although it wouldn't be. It's not that un-English to uh, change a coach or a leader just before a, a world tournament. I think Mark it's, not, Rob- it's not the change. The issue is the delay sure. when there's a yeah, m- major tournament I so guess soon. If you're looking at these things in terms of cycles, not only is there a T20 Women's Twenty World Cup in beginning of 2020. There's also then a proper World Cup start of 2021 and another T20 World Cup at the end of that year. So you can either rush into an appointment now, maybe not get the best person, which maybe gives you a better chance in the T20 World Cup. I don't know if it would if you aren't getting as good a calibre of person, and then you might also be scuppering yourself for the two tournaments after that. So I think I think it's right they're taking the time, especially with Robinson's departure being a little bit of a shock, I think, to those inside the organisation with the Ashes having gone the way it did. Ali Maiden, who is um, who was the assistant coach to Mark Robinson, he will be taking charge of that tour. Uh, Sorry, what tour is that? The, the, so the upcoming tour in January, is it? Pakistan, is that right? That's right, I think, yeah. Uh, he will be in charge of that, come what may, whoever is appointed around that time. He, he So he is... Uh, as as a figure who's already established within the setup, he will be taking charge of that tour, um, um, irrespective of when exactly that that new coach will be announced. The, the, one of the points about that coach, they have um, identified and spoken to a handful of people um, uh, from around the world, and not just male candidates either. So. Uh, yeah, we shall see. More good news. Elsewhere in the world, India continued their 100% record in the World Test Championship with a win in the first test of their series against South Africa. Rohit Sharma with a pair of hundreds in his first test as an opening batsman. In 10 tests at home, he averages 97.45. In 18 tests away, he averages 26.32. Um, How many tests has he played overall? 28. Right, yeah, okay. Bizarre, he's, so he's such he, a good he's, player. He's obviously, he's, he's, he's an absolute yeah. star. He's, he's what, 31, 32? Um, so hopefully, perhaps the most peculiar misnomer of the modern game, Rohit Sharma's um, mere averageness or ordinariness in Test match cricket can can be rectified, and he can have three yeah. good years as an. I mean, there, there are that, there are signs as well that he is just starting to crack it away from home. He played a really crucial knock in Australia as they sealed that series in South Africa at the beginning of last year. He sort of 
faced like at least 40 balls I think in every innings which if you remember that tour mm. was an absolute minefield for batsmen they almost call a test off because of how poor the pitches were um, so I think there are signs that he's been a crack at whether that's opening the batting or whether he moves down to five outside of India remains to be seen yeah but- I mean overall India's record at home in tests since the start of 2012 is played 36 won 27 lost just three and drawn six winning in India away is has got to be the hardest challenging cricket 127 from 36 is that yeah and only wow. lost three that is a serious record that, that must be the hardest thing in, in world cricket at the moment yeah and I think the thing about that is that people from an English point of view we talk about building towards the ashes all the time and mm. it's 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 just that's so not the hardest place to, yeah, to tour anymore 100%. like you should be building towards India especially I think if, they are in fairness I, th- yes. I think that selection of Mahmood and Parkinson actually has the India tour in mind which is next winter um, as opposed to building up to two winters' time. Yeah, but it's, it's, they still talk about it, don't they? They still talk yeah. about wanting to... I mean, I guess, obviously, they want to reclaim the Ashton under, but they talk about starting the planning for that series now, which I guess is the right thing to do, but also you want to make those same noises mm. about about that series. But yeah, it's it's hard to play there. Yeah, yeah I mean, Phil, you said that it, it's a, one of the great misnomers of cricket right now. Is how has how is Rohit Sharma not made it as a, as a test player? I mean, first of all, he still averages in his mid-40s, but I think the biggest problem for him is actually is the production line of batsmen India produce consistently. So Mayank Agarwal, they, they, they found another superb batsman by the looks of it. He hit his first ton, a double hundred. India, I'll tell the story of the game, India posted 502 for seven. Saka responded with 431. Dean Elgar and Quinton de Kock were sent to their own before India piled on. 323 in quick time to leave Saka needing 395 to win and Mohamed Shami took a fifer to bowl them out for 191. Good game. Good yeah, game, it was a good game. And it's kind of disheartening for South Africa because they played really well and still lost by and, and, and lost with two sessions yeah. to spare, yeah. We introduced a new segment in the show last week, our Read of the Week. This week it was Adia Sharma's piece on wisdom.com about Ravi Jadeja who test after test does the business for India. Um, there was a nice line at the end uh, from Adia, amid all the brouhaha surrounding wrist spinners and their domination in world cricket, Jadeja's figures been backed by his batting and fielding has seen him re-establish his own brand in tests. And he does kind of go under the radar for someone who is so brilliant in at least two of the three fields and he's a very good batsman as well. It's a funny one because in some ways he's quite an ostentatious cricketer. I mean, they call him Sir Jadeja, don't he? And he's sort of like... Uh, has has his like moustache and he has the celebration he gets to 50 like he clearly doesn't doesn't mind the limelight but as a he, he's and Mandrake called him bits and pieces in the World Cup and everyone was sort of a, and Jadeja himself come out and responded mm. to it um, but in some ways he's just a, a very 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 good bits and pieces cricketer or he's a proper all-rounder who can score test hundreds and take fivers but yeah it's rare a game goes by without him having I'll go for the second one <laughs> <laughs> yeah. fine it's rare a game goes by that I'm having some sort of input so this game he got 30 and 40 batting ahead of like Vihari and Saha both times and uh, uh, also took what seven wickets in the game yeah um, but again not not a five for a, or a half century yeah he's a and I think it's Sam Curran yeah I guess so yeah and <laughs> it's interesting as well what happens with him overseas and what India do with their spinner overseas because was it in Australia after Kuldeep Yadav had a really good test, Ravi Shastri said, this guy's our number one overseas. This is our guy now. And then... Didn't it was pick him ex- in West Indies. Exactly, it was Jadeja. But Jadeja does seem the maybe the most suited to all conditions in that he's going to be the one that can hold the line the most uh, mm-hmm. efficiently and also the one that can ex- extract term when it's there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you're seeing it again in test cricket. It's, it's the return of the strangle, really, mm-hmm. in test cricket. Uh, and in fairness... 
Doney was one of the pioneers of it three or four years ago when he was still in charge of that test side. And it made for some quite dull and attritional cricket at times, and he'd have seven two offside fields and so on. But when you are playing on flat tracks in India and in Australia, uh, then it makes sense. It makes absolute logical sense. Jadeja is perhaps the most accurate spinner of his generation. Um, and in that respect, he's an th- absolute throwback. He's a throwback to, to Tony Locke and, and bowlers like this who wouldn't spin it large but would just bowl wicket to wicket time after time after time. Uh, and that is, th- it's the return of old-fashioned values in Test cricket and you're seeing it. Steve Smith is in the vanguard with it, with the bat, but you're seeing it with their Australia seamers and you saw it with India seamers as well. Last year, they were brilliant against England, hilariously unlucky to lose that series. And Jadeja fits right in there. I guess there is a question, you know, on in Australia, can you milk him? Well, the, the reality is that Test cricket isn't played like that. You know, if, if you are a, a wrist spinner, a Yadav, and you bowl one bad ball and over, then Smith's just going to sit on you and then hit it for four. And you're going to have one for 100 at the end of the day. Uh, far better that you have... You have Jadeja coming in there who takes you know takes one for seventy five or or two for eighty or whatever. Yeah. That's that's how cricket is working these days. It's going to be fascinating to see how he's viewed at the end of his career because he's going to end up with a properly all time set of stats. He's going to average probably what thirty six with the bat by the time he finishes and average about twenty four with the ball, and that's putting you into literally like the best cricket that ever played the game. And I don't know if he counts as that, but that and, <laughs> and he's one of the best say, fielders yeah. in the world. If True, he's yeah. top top five fielder in the world for me. <laughs> In Australia, the Australian women's team have gone 18 ODI wins in a row. That's beaten the all-time record in women's cricket. and it's just Also held by points. Australia, right? <laughs> yeah, also held by Australia. And they are now... Playing a different game. Yeah, really and, and they are now three behind the all-time record in all ODI cricket, which is held by Australia. the Australia men's team in 2003. <laughs> uh, they're, a, they're a superb cricket team, but again, a word's got to go to Chamari Atapati, who scored another 100 Woo-hoo. for Sri Lanka again Ben, as you pointed out, scored more than half of Sri Lanka's runs and also took the only Australia wicket that Sri Lanka took in their innings. We've talked about it quite a lot this year, but Australia are consistently dominant in a way that very few cricket teams ever in any format played by either gender have ever played. And That, that T20 at Chelmsford um, when Meg Lanning got 130-odd, uh, that was the most complete performance I've ever seen from a female cricket team. It was absolutely astonishing to see them field, mm. to see them move, uh, to see them bowl. Perry in particular that day, uh, but they they are they've taken the game on to a whole other plane. Um, and going back to the top of the show, talking about England's investment, well, it couldn't have come a, a second too soon because it will take take a fair old while for England to get up to that level. Mm. Um, and the only way that they're going to do it is through initiatives such as we've seen this week. Yeah, I mean, Ben, we were talking about it in the office. At least five of the world's 11 in women's cricket would be Australia. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's probably right. Yeah, I haven't fully fleshed out all, all who the team would be, mm. but that, yeah, which is which is incredible, yeah. Are, are, are they happy, though? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> Must be pretty happy. you got a T20 World Cup coming up that yeah, yeah, they're overwhelming. Pro- well, it, is, it, is, it is interesting, though, like how they do manage to keep pushing themselves when they do just, like, not just beat but beat quite comfortably all other teams in world cricket how they manage to keep finding kind of new levels to go to it's yeah. uh it's, how, it's how do Elise Perry and Megan Lanning not just get bored yeah exactly yeah it's uh yeah, yeah. um well anyway in county cricket Hashim Amla according to reports is set to join Surrey as a Colpac player um another case of 
classic sorry paying the big bucks to an expensive overseas pro blocking the path of the youngsters um it's a disgrace isn't it ben uh, <laughs> um uh look i mean sorry like to portray themselves as sort of the uh like the good guy of the big counties in a way like they sort of fight against the hundred from some points of view and uh or at some points and they uh yeah they say that they promote youth whereas other counties don't alex has actually said that he's like you look at what hampshire uh warwickshire do and we don't need to we're relying on youth that kind of thing and this along with morning morkel in some ways goes against that but there is also a difference between a hashi mamla playing as a culpac and riley rousseau playing as a culpac in in that what hashi mamla brings to surrey and to those young players even if you might be keeping one of them out of the team sometimes is just so much experience and yeah and like no like knowledge about the game and none of them like none of the sorry about who come through don't sort of say that sankara was like a huge help for their career you know and yeah. and amla could have a similar impact in the dressing room if not on the field uh, and also just from a purely practical point of view ollie pope is quite likely to pay for england all of next summer they're going to lose yeah Ollie Pope, already lost Rory Burns, could lose Sam Curran for the entire international summer as well. That's three of your top six gone. It makes sense to bring in a, 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 a very well, a very accomplished batsman if you can do that. Yeah, sure. I also wonder, I don't know if they'll get an, an overseas in for the whole summer. And if they don't, then in a way, Amler is just filling that slot. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, they, they do sort of have a need for a bat. I mean, any, any team in the country would have a need for Hashim Amler. Um, but they also and, and also the product. The product as well. That's true, yeah. You know, I mean, it, people forget that people actually do want to watch this stuff. Uh, <laughs> and having one of the great players of the last 15 years rocking up at your club uh, and taking guard at quarter past 11, I mean, what, what's not to love about that, really? It, it's not like he's turned his back on South African cricket. He's been their number one of the, their two, number, two players, two big players for the last decade or more he's given absolutely everything to South African cricket you're right it's not like Russo walking away at 27 he's walking away at 36 uh, having given every last sinew mm. to, to the cause of his country so for us or for, for English cricket to get sniffy about this I just find it I find it odd if Surrey had five uh, then you can legitimately say that they're, they're blocking the pathway of young English cricketers Surrey have produced more England cricketers in the last couple of years than any other club, and they only have Morkel and potentially Amler, who will be blocking any mm. pathway. So they'll have nine plus a handful on the on on the sidelines, ready to go. And as you rightly say, why shouldn't a professional club, when they look at the reality of their next summer, think, "All right, well, Ollie Pope's not going to be playing for us at all. Uh, Jason Roy's only going to be playing the odd game here and there." Um, so yeah, okay, let's get somebody who's retired from international cricket, fair and square. Uh, and get him over here to impress the, ma- the thousands of members that we've got, add a bit of class and colour to the English game, uh, teach the young'uns how to, get, how to go about it, uh, and, and everybody should be happy. Sorry, must really value uh, the presence of these all-time greats in the gesture because they've had quite a few in quite a short period of time. So we've had Ponting, Graham Smith, Kevin Peterson, Kumar Sankara, and now Hashim Amla in the last seven or eight years. So yeah, I, they... d- I do like it at the over where you have these sort of iconic images around the ground and Ponting is one of them, emblazoned on the side of the, the Lakers stand, I think it is. And he played about three games, you know. It's, it is great. It is great how they, how they turn. But they must things. value the presence of these guys and just sure, otherwise sure, keep sure. going to them. They do. I'm being slightly facetious. Yeah. Uh, and obviously the Sankara effect was profound on those young players yeah. you know and they still speak in hushed tones about him Peterson played half a dozen games you know and yet he is a Surrey legend mm. 
it does amuse me a little bit. But of course, yeah, and, and it's a, just a mark of how much heft the club has and how mm. well they've managed their finances, how they've turned the T20 thing into something hugely profitable. Uh, Richard Gould said to Adam Collins earlier in the week that you know he sees the club as akin to a top 10 Premier League football club. In the not-too-distant future, this will be the first 40,000-seat cricket stadium in the UK, which, yeah. um, which will be... Yeah, renovations wonderful. taking place as we speak. Mm. And finally... There's been a there's been a T20I series in Pakistan. Sri Lanka have beaten Pakistan, the number one ranked T20I side in the world, in their own backyard with a second string side. Ten Sri Lanka players refuse to travel to Pakistan for the tour, and it's given opportunities to a few new players to impress. So one of those is a guy called Banuka Raja Paksa, who hit a sensational 48 for 77 in just his second international. He's quite an interesting player because he uh, he was the leading run scorer for Sri Lanka in the 2010 under-19 Say the name again. Banuka Raja Paksa. Okay. Yeah. One more time. Remember the name. Remember the name. Well, he's, well, he's actually about to turn 28, so he's not that young. He was, a le- he was their leading run scorer in the 2010 Under-19 World Cup, which is the same one as when you had uh, Root, Butler, Stokes all right. playing in the England team. Uh, only three people scored more runs in that tournament. One of, them, one of those was Barazam. Barazam, Claxon. And Craig Brathwaite, yeah. yeah. Um, and then good. he was put straight away into the Shrankar A side and then had six years where he didn't do much but was still picked religiously in the Sri Lanka side. So he's played 32 List A games for Sri Lanka A and averages 23 and he's a specialist batsman. They kept on picking him. <laughs> they kept on picking him. But he's had um, a bit of a career renaissance recently. Earlier this year, he scored 268 off 170-odd balls in a first-class game. Hit 19 sixes, which is more than anyone in the history of the game except from two players. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's done really well. And is basically in his first opportunity, uh, I guess the challenge for him is can he keep his spot when all the regulars come back? But yeah. I think he's more than done enough to at least get a, a reasonably prolonged go in the team. The challenge for him is also, can he just do a bit more of the other stuff that cricketers need to do, like social media and stuff? He's got a... His, <laughs> his Twitter handle uh, is is it even harder to pronounce than uh, than yeah, has found his name. It's uh, at B and then loads and loads of letter and letters and numbers. And he has never tweeted, retweeted or, or liked a tweet on the platform but he's still, he's still there. But he's also um, got a profile picture as well yeah. which he's got himself in it with three people who look quite a lot younger than him. Yeah, that's, that's enough for 50 caps for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, on a serious note on the series, uh, as well as it being promising for Sri Lanka, they might have found a few players. It's quite worrying for Pakistan and for Mizbrin, his first sort of T20I series as coach because they came into it as number one side in the world and I think they'll leave as number one side in the world as well. But maybe that is inflated a bit by them playing either in the UAE on tracks which really suit their style of T20 cricket, but not the surface we're going to get in Australia, or playing in Pakistan, often against weaker teams because of some players refusing to tour. Yeah, and and also no one's really taken the T20I format seriously for the last Mm -hmm. three years. Everyone's been gearing up to the 2019 World Cup. That's gone. And now the focus is on the the T20 World Cup next year. So... I'm not sure how much you can read in the rankings. I mean, just from an English point of view, when was the last time England fielded a full-strength side in a T20I? Um, there were some positives for, for Pakistan. Mohamed Hussain became the youngest bowler to claim a T20I hat-trick. He's only only 19, so that's good news. Um, I think that's the end of today's show, um, unless anyone else wants to talk about cricket for any longer. No, I think we're done. We're, we're most certainly done we are here, done. Yes. We are done. Thanks, Phil. Pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Pleasure. Before we go, one last message. Make sure that you carry out the survey on www.wisdom.com forward slash survey 2019. 
Uh, we want to know what you think about everything that we do uh, on the magazine, the website and the podcast, your views on the game even. We've got plenty of prizes up for offer, including tickets to England versus West Indies in the Test Series next summer, a Vitality Blast season ticket of your county of choice, cricket bats and magazine subscriptions. So please do fill that out. Um, that'll be for your benefit as much as ours. Um, we'll be back next week as usual. If you've enjoyed the show, tell your friends, subscribe, and if you really, really like the show, why don't you leave a nice review too? Thanks a lot. See you next time. Sports Social Podcast Network.